Exodus 13, we're just going to look at a few verses tonight about how God led Israel, led them right into a trap so that he could deliver them. And then next week, we'll talk about the Red Sea crossing, and the week after that, about the song of the sea. And then we move into the grumbling passages. Israel grumbles three times as soon as they get through the sea. And even in chapter 14, they grumble a little bit. But before all that, it all started with God's guidance, which is here in Exodus 13, verse 17. Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest, perhaps, the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So they took their journey from Succoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Let's pray. Father, help us to hear your word and to understand it and to live in light of it, to follow your leading. Lord, we know that that phrase is utterly, horrifically abused on all hands, that people have committed the most heinous sins and then claimed that it was all done under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the leading of your word. Father, we ask that you would preserve us from such a fate. Help us to follow your real leading, to hear your truth and to obey it. Help me to speak boldly and accurately. Give me the wisdom to proclaim your word to your people, to feed these hungry sheep. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Some people really wonder and fret about the will of God. Where is God leading me? What is God trying to tell me? What does God want me to do? That's more typical, of course, at, at unsettled phases of life. You will find some older people who feel that way, but typically that's younger people who feel that way. There are other people, of course, who say, oh, I know what God wants. I know I'm exactly where I ought to be. God is leading me just here. So whichever of those categories you fall into, this text is for you, as it describes how God led Israel out of Egypt. He does lead his people. We need to know that. And he goes with them on the trip. So... We start with the message that God didn't take them by the nearest way. When Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines. Now, if your geography is a little rusty, you might want to turn to one of your maps in the back of your Bible. You probably have a map purporting to show the Exodus route and various guesses about what that might have been. Mine, for instance, actually has the way of the Philistines labeled. But as you know, 
The Mediterranean coast has that beautiful little swoosh right around from uh, Israel coast down to, to Egypt coast, as it were. And that's the obvious way to travel from Egypt up to Israel with the beach there on your left and you can walk right up into Israel. As I mentioned last week, that way is closed today. That's where Gaza lies, kind of a sealed territory that both Egypt and Israel want nothing to do with. But in those days, that was the obvious route. The problem, of course, is that the obvious route is too obvious. And along that route, there was an Egyptian fort at every well. Every day's march, the Egyptians had built another fort so that they could easily walk or march their armies up into Palestine. So God said, if I take them that way, they will see war and they will return to Egypt. In fact, they will see war, they will get beaten, and the Egyptians most likely will bring them back in chains. So God does not take the people by the nearest way. Nor, however, does he take them by the most difficult way. The, the nearest way would have been the most difficult way. A way where instead of one Red Sea crossing and deliverance, one deliverance out of the hands of Egypt, there would have been a new one every single day. Oh, let's conquer another fort. Oh, look, another fort. Let's conquer that one. No, God doesn't take the shortest route, nor does he take the toughest route. He doesn't change. And so we can take some knowledge of his character from this. God is, generally speaking, not going to take you down the hardest, most brutal path possible. He is fond of roundabouts and long cuts rather than shortcuts. And that is where he took the people. God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. There are Egyptian soldiers on the roads? Very well. We will go where there are no roads. Of course, as we'll quickly find out, where there are no roads, there is also no water. Now, wilderness way is not a pleasant way to travel. It's certainly not an easy path, but it is easier than the way of the land of the Philistines. So God takes them actually on a path that does not exist. The way of the Red Sea, Moses calls it. It's a way that only God can open. And I think that this is an important point. It sounds a little bit mystical, but it's true. God's leading, generally speaking, will be to take you somewhere where only he could take you. In this case, through the middle of the Red Sea. That was not something that two million Israelites were going to do on their own. Certainly not on foot. There are a few brave individuals who have swum the English Channel. Maybe somebody has swum across the Gulf of Aqaba at some point. But a crowd of ordinary people is never going to take that path. God opened that way. And when the children of Israel went out in an orderly way, the New King James says went up in orderly ranks, the word there is hamushim, and that has given commentators lots of fits. It's a unique word that sounds a lot like the word for hot, for five, which is hameshim, but it's not 
the word for five. So I was thinking that it is maybe, maybe does mean five. There have been all kinds of supposed translations here. Some translations say the children of Israel went up in ranks of five, which in my mind is inherently improbable. If your family is six, well, kick one of them into the next rank. We will march five abreast and that's how we'll go. Others have said, well, that probably means they went up in the fifth generation. You know, God says they would be enslaved four generations, and then in the fifth, they left. But why you would have a chronological note right there, I'm not sure. Others have guessed that it means armored at the fifth rib. Because Joab, you know, would smite people under the fifth rib in order to kill them. And so these people were smart. They carried some armor right there on their chest to protect them. Well, it's amazing what translators can come up with if you give them a word that sounds like five. Armed at the fifth rib, they take as girded for military service. Wearing armor, and thus the King James translation, the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. That is, wearing armor and battle gear. We don't know what the word means. Our best guess is that it refers to some kind of order. Orderly ranks, as the New King James says, they were not a mob. God doesn't lead you in a disorderly way. He doesn't tell you, in other words, drop everything and go. Just ignore your responsibilities. This is your new calling. Forget everything that I had you doing two minutes ago. We can think of Mr. Bingley and the beginning of Pride and Prejudice boasting that if he decided to move, he would be gone in five minutes and never come back. And the rest telling him that that would be very idiotic and stupid. And so it is. God is not going to lead you in a way where he says, make a mess out of your life. Drop your commitments. Leave your house behind and never do anything about it. Yes, there are things in the New Testament, right? Follow Jesus. No one has put his hand to the plow and looked back. is fit for the kingdom. Let the dead bury their own dead. What is Jesus saying? Not leave your life in disorder in order to follow me, but understand that following me is the most important thing you can ever do, including more important than burying your parents or filing your taxes. But that doesn't mean you should leave your parents out on the surface to rot or that you should ignore the tax man. So God guides them, and Moses gives us a few points about the character of God, that he leads you through the way only he can open, and he leads you down a hard road, but not an impossible road. And he highlights then God's faithfulness. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, because Joseph had made the children of Israel swear. He had prefaced it with, God will surely take care of you. Well, that's a great statement, Joseph. We agree with that statement. What we don't know, and maybe what Joseph didn't know, is that God will surely take care of you means you'll be enslaved for centuries. You'll suffer a genocide attempt that will be inches away from being successful. That's how God takes care of his people. In other words, right, the leading of God is not such that if we say, things are getting difficult, the bullets are starting to fly, 
Life is starting to be very uncomfortable. Therefore, God must not be leading me here. Well, that's the wrong takeaway. God will surely take care of you. And you shall carry up my bones from here. So God did deliver them, just as he had promised. He said, I will bring you out after 400 years, four generations. And he does. And God had also promised, well, Israel rather, imitated that faithfulness of God. They had sworn to bring up the bones of Joseph. And they kept that oath. Now that's pretty remarkable. That was somewhere around 380 years since the death of Joseph to the Exodus. And 380 years later, Joseph's people remembered him and remembered their promise to him and knew where his tomb was and were able to go and grab his bones and bring them along. What is Moses telling us? Well, not only that Joseph knew that he would get to the promised land eventually, but also he's saying, teach your children to keep their commitments. Teach your children to make a promise and that that's sacred. And if they say that, they must carry through. And teach them in such a way that that lesson is still going strong 400 years down the road. That your great-great-grandchildren of however many generations, what Joshua was about nine generations down from Judah who came into Egypt, that nine-great-grandchild will remember to keep the promise that you made in his name. It's a forward-looking way of life. The leading of God is not just for the individual. It's for the family in generational terms and way beyond how we're accustomed to thinking. So train your children and pray for your children and train your children to train their children. God's faithfulness, part of the lesson of God's faithfulness is to make his people also faithful to keep their promises. So God's promises seemed for a long time like they were gone, but they weren't. They were dormant and they would come in the right time. Well, so they took their journey from Succoth and camped at the edge of the wilderness. What is the wilderness like? Those of you who have been to Israel come back and report that the Judean desert is indeed a pretty fearsome, ferocious place. Jeremiah described it this way, Where is the Lord, Jeremiah 2.6, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through and where no man dwells. Sounds like a pretty wonderful spot. We think, oh, Mediterranean coast, white sand beaches, a wonderful, just a few weeks of walking along that and seeing the beautiful, beautiful coastline. And God says, no, we're going to go through this, a land of deserts and pits. Nothing there. 
and especially no water, and not even any light, a land of deep darkness. What does he mean by that? Maybe the spiritual climate, the desert has often been thought of as the abode of demons, something like that. And it's a place where there's no directional signs or signals. I could go that way, or that way, or ahead, or behind. It's all the same. One giant pile of sand. A land that none passes through. Anybody in their right mind would stay out of this. And no one dwells there. What is the lesson of the wilderness? What does that mean? You have to rely exclusively on God. That's where God took them. A place remote and inaccessible to human help. Now God will not always lead you there in one sense, but at the same time He will lead each one of us there at a certain point, and maybe repeatedly. He had to bring all of Israel, or He wanted to bring all of Israel to the place where there was no way to call for help. There was no human assistance. There, they had nothing and nobody except the living God. So divine guidance is not, should I buy this at Home Depot or Menards? Should I get help from my mom's side of the family or my dad's side of the family? Should I call on my big brother or my little brother? Divine guidance is going to manifest itself at some point as you have nobody. It is just you and God. And that doesn't leave out the role of the church. Obviously, the people are all together here. And yet, corporately, they became altogether utterly dependent on God. So as we look around the world and say, persecution is on the horizon, despots, terrorism, shortages, price increases, you name it, it's coming. What does God say? He sits on his heavenly throne and he says, I told you the name of the place you're going is the wilderness. And the characteristic of the wilderness is that there is no help there. You have to rely on me. We don't like it when God forces us into that corner where we have to rely on Him. God is the ultimate source of provision. Food doesn't come from Walmart. Food doesn't come from farmers. Your paycheck doesn't come from your employer. It comes ultimately from God Almighty. So yes, in the midst of a beautiful city with lots of nice stores, anything we could possibly want, within a few minutes' drive of our home, we still need to learn to rely on God. Sometimes He will physically take you into the wilderness and drop you there. But this is primarily, mostly a spiritual lesson. To go into the wilderness is to be with God and to not be with some alternate source of help, something else that could become a god, an idol in your life. So Egypt had lots of food. 
Egypt, they had a job, they had some kind of social security system. Well, I'm a slave and I'll always be a slave and my kids will be slaves and we will always have monumental projects to build for Pharaoh. And it's got the best food anywhere in the Mediterranean world. And so we will just camp here, God said. And they make reference to that. The flesh pots of Egypt were hungry. God says, no, you're going into the wilderness and there you will have not even bread and water. All you will have is me. So where does this happen to us? Where does God take away everything? Well, sometimes it's a literal financial loss, the loss of a loved one. Uh, Sometimes it's just psychological, a loss of confidence. Just suddenly the feeling comes over you, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what to do. I'm stuck. I got nothing. Well, you still have your car keys in your pocket and your credit card in your other pocket, but God is bringing you to the place where you realize all I have is Jesus. So in one sense, if the church is not in the wilderness, the church is in the wrong place. If we think we're in heaven already, then we don't understand what our life is going to be like. It's not the hardest way, nor is it the easy way. It's a way that would not exist unless God brought you down it. But God goes with them. And this is the fascinating thing. that God appeared in visible form to His people how many times in the Bible? Well, essentially, just one, which is this, and then a second time in the person of Jesus. So this here begins the most special time in redemptive history. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, or the pillar of fire by night from before the people for the next 40 years. Wow. These people needed to learn that all they had is God, but He did condescend to appear to them in a visible form that was static, that didn't just vanish whenever He felt like vanishing. Now, did that make the people any better behaved? No. But God was there, and He was there in visible, tangible form. You couldn't doubt that this pillar of cloud shot through with fire was the living God. There's no record of somebody going up and trying to touch the cloud and being struck by lightning. But probably... Everyone knew what would happen if they went too close to the cloud. There was no doubt in your mind, if you were Joe Israelite, that that is God. And he's right here with us. He blazed all night long, just like the burning bush. Here it is again, the self-feeding, self-subsisting fire. Wrapped in a cloud to show his transcendence. And he is remote from human eyes, 
you can't look on him and live, and therefore his fire is concealed within this cloud. Could you learn to fear God in that situation? Could you learn to follow God's leading? Where literally, when God wants you to go somewhere, he gets up and walks away, and you're supposed to get up and follow him. God's teaching his people that he's self-existence, that he is the self-feeding fire. He's teaching them his holiness. He's teaching them his transcendence. And he does it perpetually for 40 solid years. And above all, what is he teaching? I will stay with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You can go to bed at night. You wake up in the morning and look out your tent door and I am still there. I know that there are times, and all of us, certainly I, want to say, God, where are you? Why don't you show yourself in something the world could see, some visible, tangible, radiant piece of holiness that would kill anybody who tried to test it for whether it was really divine? And the answer is that God wants us to walk by faith. But here in the desert... He lets them go by sight. You have nothing but me, and so I will show myself to you. So how do we apply that to us? God is not coming in the pillar of cloud and fire to show us our way through our daily life. He doesn't show up in a big decision. Oh, the guy is kneeling. Oh no, he's going to propose. God, what do I say? Right? And the pillar of cloud pops out and God tells you, don't say yes to this. No. That's not how it happens. Ultimately, how we apply this to ourselves is to ask, where was God leading them? And the answer to that is found in, the, well, in chapter 15, two chapters ahead. And we'll focus on this verse. Verse 17 of Exodus 15, I think one of the most key verses in the whole Pentateuch. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Where is God leading them? He's leading them to heaven. The temple not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And it's specifically negated. It's not a sanctuary made with human hands. It's a sanctuary built with divine hands. That's where God was leading them and that's where he's still leading his people. The goal is heaven. The path is not by the hardest way, not by the way where we will have to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil every single night in one of their biggest strongholds. Rather, God takes us through the wilderness, which means the place where we have to depend on Him. The place where we say, I can't do this. I don't know where to go. I don't know how to do desert travel. I've lived my whole life next to the Nile River. God says, I will take you where you need to go. I will guide you. I will be with you. And the destination 
is heaven. So what's the way to heaven? Well, the rest of the Bible talks about it. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Obey him. Meet with his people. Learn to be more like him by being with his people and growing in hearing his word and prayer. That's how you get to heaven. That's how God leads us. So whether you knew coming in that you were where God wanted you to be or you were wondering, where does God want you to be? He wants you to be in the Word, in church, in prayer, obeying His lawful commands, and the rest will take care of itself. He will take you to heaven in His way by the path that He chooses. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Lord, we thank you that you did not take them right into the hands of the waiting Egyptians, that you took them where there was no road, and that there you taught them to rely exclusively on you. Father, we make bold tonight to ask that you would remove us from the idols that we like to cling on to, that we want to follow. Father, take us away from those things so that we only have you. Whether that's through physical loss, financial loss, or just through teaching us psychologically the lesson. Father, we pray for our church. Help us as a body to be a people who rely on you. And therefore, when the things of this world are shaken or removed, We are not shaken and we are not removed because we didn't rely on the things of this world. Father, help us to be firmly grounded in you. Thank you that you showed yourself as fire in cloud to the people for 40 years. Thank you that you've shown us yourself more perfectly in your son Jesus. Transform us into his image. As a body, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.